The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. You know, Kobus, we often say that you can see whatever you want in the China-Africa relationship. That is, if you think China's the worst thing that's ever happened to Africa, there's a very good case to be made, and there'd be ample evidence. The same is actually true in reverse. If you want to say that it's the best thing that's ever happened to the continent, well, there's lots of evidence to make that case as well. And few other issues highlight this dichotomy better than China's energy engagement in Africa. Now, we've been discussing over the past few months and years about a number of troubling Chinese-supported energy projects in Africa. Uh, let's go through a short list here. There's the Suapiti Dam in Guinea that the Chinese are building and financing as a hydroelectric dam. We talked to Human Rights Watch about the displacement of thousands of people. There's the $3 billion Sengwa coal power station in Zimbabwe, of course, building lots of coal now at the time of climate change is very disconcerting. And also the major upgrade of the Huangge coal power station, a $600 million upgrade also in Zimbabwe, that's now about 60% done, yet adding more coal capacity into a country that is already struggling with climate change. And there's a very long list of other carbon-based and environmentally destructive hydroelectric dams that are undeniably troubling. But if you're only looking at that part of the story, well, you're missing the other side of the story. Now consider this. Africa is a continent where more than half of the population, around 635 million people, still lack access to electricity. And for those who do have access, it's often very bad. Kobus, you know this firsthand just from the past few weeks about the load shedding in South Africa with ESCOM. And amazingly, overall electricity consumption among Africans has actually gone down over the past 10 years, not up as it has pretty much everywhere else. So think about that in the context of China's contribution to African energy access. Between 2010 and 2015, according to the International Energy Agency, 30% of all new electricity capacity was done by Chinese contractors who also added 28,000 kilometers of transmission lines. Also, if you're somebody who thinks that China only invests in dirty energy projects that use coal and oil in Africa, well, that too isn't entirely accurate. Last December, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta opened a new Chinese-built 50-megawatt solar power station in northeast Kenya. And earlier this year, the Zambian power company Zesco signed a half-a-billion-dollar deal with the Chinese state-owned company Power China to build three 200-megawatt solar power plants. So, Cubas, this is a very, very confusing picture and an issue that is widely misunderstood because it's really hard to track the money and track the projects and see what's going on in this space. Yeah, this is a complicated issue. Um, and it, it gets more complicated because very few issues are as politically sensitive in Africa as electricity. Um, you know, like almost everyone in Africa is unhappy about about their electricity supply. Um, and so, so there's a lot of popular pressure on governments, even in repressive countries like Zimbabwe, to improve the electricity situation. Um, and we're certainly seeing it in South Africa, the, the state, ESCOM, the state-owned, 
owned um, you know electricity provider which which has had rolling blackouts for years and years is probably the least popular company in South Africa um, and so you know the, so there's there's in theory there's a there's a kind of a, a ripe opportunity for Chinese companies to to kind of step into the space but stepping into the space is also very complicated it's very complicated as you said there are political social environmental economic there's debt issues involved so that's why when a new paper published by the Journal of Energy Research and Social Science came across our radar China's role in Africa's energy transition a critical review of its intensity institutions and impact written by Dr. Wei Shen a research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton England we were eager to get Wei to come on the show and talk to us. And for the first time on the program, we're very, very happy to have Dr. Wei on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kobus Eric. It's good to be here. I really enjoyed your paper, and it was one of the first papers that I've seen that really looked at the broad scope of China's energy engagement in Africa, and you addressed a lot of the complexity in the paper. Unfortunately, the paper is behind one of those annoying academic paywall, so it's very difficult for others to see. So we're going to try and highlight some of the themes that you address in the paper. Let's take our first part of our discussion now and just help set up the picture for us about the energy landscape in Africa and the role that the Chinese are playing. Give us an overview of where we are today. Who are the players? What are the industries that they're in in terms of solar versus hydro versus coal? And, and just give us a broad overview as you found it in your research. The, regarding the complexity of the actors uh, in, in promoting Chinese overseas energy uh, activities, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, previous studies already on who are most active players and what they do and in which areas. So my starting point is is uh, is is a kind of a questions about why uh, where where other um, researchers are focusing on what have been done. I'm asking the question of what haven't been done well. So starting with the question like you know why renewable energies, which has been developed so well in the past decade, when China is kind of the championship of the global uh, renewable energy transition, are not doing. Uh, much in the particular in terms of nine hydro uh, wind and solar company uh, uh, projects in Africa and what are the uh, um, existing institutional ideological barriers that we can find to explain such kind of imbalances between uh, many conventional uh, energy projects as you already mentioned um, just now and the kind of a lack of involvement uh, in, 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 in renewable energy activities, and also how the complexity of these actors can uh, use as a kind of an explanation of such kind of insufficiency in renewables. So my, my key uh, actually findings based on the review of the existing literature and also a couple of uh, interviews with the key actors inside China is that there are a lack of uh, incentives um, both political incentives and, and, and economic incentives for the Chinese companies to particularly explore uh, renewable energy opportunities in the African uh, continent. And the other is that the existing uh, complex uh, kind of uh, industrial finance uh, complex are actually um, kind of a deter, implicitly deter uh, many applications of renewables from within China. 
So if, if we look at the people who are who are already involved in um, in sustainable electricity provision in Africa, are they the same companies that are also involved in providing coal, or are we are we talking about a separate group of companies who was focusing on renewables particularly? Oh, that, that's a good question. And uh, and we, before answering that, I I think we need to first differentiate in different sections of supply chains in the renewables. And if you look at the top ten solar panel and the wind turbine manufacturers top 10 the world top 10 companies among which that I think there are five Chinese companies in terms of wind industry but in solar panel industries seven or eight of them are actually from are actually based in China so that means that in terms of technology supplies China is really dominant the areas but if you look at these companies None of them are act, actually actively in, uh, involved in um, in African uh, wind and solar markets. For example, Goldwind have one or two projects in Ethiopia and in South Africa, and that's it. And you don't see Mingyang, you don't see um, Vision, and you don't see uh, uh, United Power very much um, uh, in terms of wind. And, this, and solar is the same thing. And so these are not traditionally the so-called big SOEs that we've been seeing and doing a lot of hydro and uh, and uh, uh, coal-fired power stations in the past decades. So these are two actually actor groups. But the recent trend is that you see a kind of an emerging um, kind of a consortium building up between, for example, China Three Gorges and these renewable companies, and also between, for example, Jinko and Power China. So that's that's a kind of a new strategy going on. And how that kind of a new strategy will play out, make a difference, is still too early to see. I'm still confused about the breakdown in terms of where the Chinese are investing or engaging, because not always it's investment. Sometimes it's in they're doing the, con, the, the contracting. They have lots of different roles in their engagement in the African energy sector. I mentioned, for example, the 50 megawatt solar power plant in northeastern Kenya, also the partnership between Power China and Zesco in Zambia for three 200 megawatt plants. So there's a lot going on in the solar space. How does that compare to what they're doing in coal, renewable, in, in hydro and other renewables? I think for decades, the Chinese model no matter what they do, I mean, engaging different kind of infrastructure projects, railways uh, and roads and energy projects as well, the, uh, the kind of a China model, if there is a one, is to use the so-called EPC plus finance model. And that is the dominant model in the, uh, in the, in the previous decade. And just explain for us, very, I'm sorry to interrupt you, what is EPC, just for those people who don't know? Yeah, EPC is um, uh, equipment procurement and the contractor model, which means that the project developers are actually from either from the third country or from the re- recipient countries that who actually recruit a contractor to finish all the construction works and turning uh, to make the project more or less like a turnkey, and then. And the Chinese contractors who are more or less, to use a metaphor, it's more or less like you want to rebuild your garden and you invited a builder into, into, into your garden to finish all the jobs and, and you just enjoy the garden. But the difference of Chinese contractor um, here is a little bit different, is, is that they bringing up the uh, much needed finance into um, into the project so that they, they don't just provide the technology and the construction, but they also provide finance 
uh, usually provided supplied by uh, Chinese state-owned banks like Exim Bank and Chinese Development Banks. And sometimes, if it is a higher risky, the so-called high risky area, it will be supported by Sinoshore. In that case, then you could have a project that is actually a general electric project, but that China's doing the EPC, the contracting of it, and in some cases, Chinese financing may actually even be playing a role in a GE project. Is that how you, what you're saying? Then they sell. They seldom do do both, but they they can do. But the equity investment and also the uh, the the contract uh, contract uh, contracts uh, construction contracts sometimes are separated. Uh, mostly are separated. So the the finance they're provided are usually under the buyer credits or seller credit arrangement. So the uh, the construction may be fi- uh, finished in about five years time, and then the loan will be repaid in about twenty or thirty years time. In, in your paper, you make the point that that the idea that that all of this international engagement and the kind of rollout of Chinese Chinese you know produce power around the world is is directed by the state and and you, you make the point that the state is actually even though it it, it looks very monolithic and and, and very um, you know centrally controlled from the outside in in a lot of a lot of cases state agencies actually don't have a lot of control over what Chinese companies are doing I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that the overseas activities or overseas infrastructure finance activities it's a very unique sector because the Export and uh, and uh, overseas activities such important sector to China and to Chinese economy. So it is not governed by one single uh, government entity as we usually see. For example, if you look at domestic energy market in China, it's an enormous market, but it's more more or less regulated only by National Energy Administration within China. So any other ministries are only playing a supportive role. But for overseas activities, it is actually governed by a number of uh, key ministries, ranging from Minister of Finance, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Minister of Commerce, and also National Development and Reform Commissions. So we we see a kind of high degree of fragmentation of decision makings among these um, ministries, um, trying to sometimes compete with each other if they think the decision making is, is 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 good for them but sometimes they just shove around responsibilities if they think that the decision making is a kind of a, a kind of a hot potato they don't want to do so there is a lot of fragmentation and also vacuum in the decision making so it, the current arrangement is that for projects that are beyond certain threshold for example 500 million or 200 million i don't know the, the specific figure but um, beyond certain threshold or in some high risk countries will be shoved above to the state council that are governing all these ministries but for most of the common, so-called common ordinary projects will be will be decided by the financial institutions i just mentioned the the the, the so-called big 3 exim cdb and sinoshore so for this arrangement it means that the uh, the project level decision making actually are not made by the state ministries, right? Apart from those very big or kind of a politically important projects or projects with kind of a sensitive dip- diplomatic relations and so on. But, but the majority of projects, actually, uh, the decision powers reside within um, the, 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 uh, the so-called policy finance institutions. And what role do the state-owned enterprises themselves 
play in all of this. So a company like Power China or State Grid, for example, two of largest, two of China's largest power companies, they're out there competing in the marketplace to get contracts from the likes of GE, for example, to do EPC, as we mentioned. At the same time, they're uh, trying to, to grow their businesses and compete with other state-owned enterprises in Africa. And there's a certain level of chaos and competition that's there as well. Is that right? Yeah. So um, some of the uh, ministries are actually, um, uh, for, particular Minister of Commerce, are responsible for the coordination of all the, all the so-called um, chaotic competitions, um, and in, in particularly uh, overseas markets. And to... Um, not to handpick, but at least to to ask them to sit in one room and discuss and who will do this or what are the selection criteria and who. So th- th- there will be internal uh, kind of uh, coordination mechanisms that may not be uh, often seen by by outsiders. In your paper, you you sh- you point out that both the wind industry and the solar industry has faced um, you know significant challenges in China as well over the last while, including loss of subsidies, um, you know, um, anti-dumping legislation in, in in key foreign markets and so on. How healthy is the renewable industry in China at the moment? Well, it, it de- depending on how you define um, uh, healthy, but but um, in the uh, the current. Uh, growth rate of wind and solar capacities is still about 20, 30 gigawatts each year. So it's still kind of a, uh, I can still define it as a booming uh, industries. And But in some areas, the, the, there are kind of a, um, a curtailment uh, issues. And sometimes the, uh, the, the, some, some of the wind farms and the solar parks cannot be connected um, um, and to, um, to, to the grid and transmitted to the, uh, the eastern part of China and, and so on. The difficulties of Chinese uh, uh, renewable market at the moment is that how to accommodate more uh, distributive systems that are, that, that are believed to be more kind of uh, uh, suitable for many uh, local communities uh, rather than the kind of uh, on-grid uh, power stations um, that are in kind of a locate in a kind of a remote areas in western and northern part of China, which are very far away from actu- actually the energy consumption hub in the eastern part of China. Back in Africa, you mentioned that there are three different ways that people interpret Chinese energy engagement in Africa. Let me just summarize them very quickly, and I'd love to get your your take and a little explanation on them. You said at the macro level, which is internationally. The issues of Chinese energy engagement in Africa are oftentimes framed in a geopolitical context. And you wrote that the China's uh, as a rising power in shaping the status quo of global energy security, governance structures and rules and power relations. That is how people in the U.S., Europe and Japan, for example, will look at Chinese energy engagement. Then at the national level, you said that debt sustainability issues are the primary concern. And it's interesting on debt sustainability issues because right now we actually have a case study for that going on in Laos here in Southeast Asia, where China and the the power company have agreed to uh, a, a debt for equity swap. So in this case, the Lao power company is unable to repay its debts, and China is now taking some ownership of it. And Cobus, that is the debt trap fear right there. And so that's playing out here in Southeast Asia, and that's going to be an issue that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks to see if there's some applications of that theory in Africa 
And finally, way at the local level, you wrote that people focus more on the impact of these engagements in terms of the environment and community. Uh, labor, again, environmental degradation, pollution, displacement of people. That's what's happening at the local level. Could you walk us through those three levels that you outlined in your paper and talk to us about how different actors kind of look at Chinese energy engagement in Africa? At the geopolitical level, the uh, the criticism um, of, of Chinese engagement it started uh, decades ago when there's a kind of a debate of whether China is a kind of a resource grab uh, of, of key uh, African uh, uh, natural resources, including oil and gas and other minerals and so on. Um, but my argument is that, that that focus, again, is, is to try to look at Chinese state or look at Chinese state strategy as a pure top-down, uh, decided by top leaders and implemented by CCPs, which are not exactly the case when most of these acti- activities are, are actually driven by commercial interests of, of the, these SOEs. Obviously, it sounds a little bit weird to talk about the commercial interests of SOEs, but it, it, it is basically... Uh, according to our research, that that's basically the uh, the motivation um, of SOEs to explore uh, overseas market, including African market, rather than just obeying or kind of listening to what CCP or what what Chinese government told them to do. Um, so many of these uh, practices they are doing are not based on the political calculation or political interest that that we we assume. Even if you look at the BRI. Um, if you look at ask uh, even a couple of years ago, if you ask uh, the the Chinese bankers and what 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 actually the BRI actually make an impact on your on your operations, their their the their answer is very limited because that's what been doing um, uh, for decades. Now, there's not much changed um, apart from this kind of new name of of what their kind of old business been. Uh, been doing so. Th- some of this, uh, this, this uh, uh, and, uh, criticism of Chinese challenging the state quo, and and it's just to, just to ignore the facts. It's just not like you know uh, Chinese uh, uh, energy activities has been there. The first Chinese hydropower stations were been uh, was been built in I think in Cameroon uh, in in nineteen sixties. So it is just a natural trend of another technological power that have the sufficiency of the capability of financial technological capability to export and to, to expand business, to, to expand business into territories that it previously didn't do much. Um, so that's my uh, argument. At, at the national uh, level, again, um, the... Uh, and I would like to skip the national level, but I'll focus on the local level, because that that's uh, that's that's the um, the main criticism that we're facing, and I think the more um, more actually uh, serious, um, because if you look think about China's portfolio and around two hundred projects in Africa at the moment, taking about thirty percent. Of the of the new capacities of, of Chinese uh, of African uh, energy market, and also will soon reach about ten percent of the total accumulative capacity of Chinese uh, sorry African energy market. Then obviously there will be um, um, bad apples. 
All right. And the question is, is that、um, who is responsible and who is accountable for that? As I said, the、um, the, uh, the 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 problems is complicated because Chinese companies are usually act as contractors. They don't think they have the responsibility to for. In overall, generally speaking, to distribute the benefits of the projects they are delivering, and they are not. They also believe that they don't responsible for the the negative benefits that might uh, uh, kind of uh, occur during the project uh, uh, implementations if it is not specifically written in the contracts they are doing. So that's that's been that's been the ideology for them for for many many years. So they just came into the site to do the job and leave the site, and that's it. But increasingly, it it is increasingly clear that you can't just you know let let local governments do all these jobs uh, uh, for the land acquisition for for the uh, uh, displacement of people and also to to evaluate environmental、uh, impacts and so on, but. The, uh, the 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 transition to a more kind of a social and environmentally responsible contractor takes years, and and I I think they started to pick up the language of so-called community risks nowadays, but the how to integrate them into the daily practices, and try to and and try to facilitating institutional changes, for example, to recruit more people, more capable people, to. Uh, safeguard to at least assist with local governments to 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 address these issues、um, is still is still only taking shape. I think there are a lot of、uh, discussions at the moment, but、uh, few changes actually happened. But they are at least realized this is a kind of a risk. Why why it is a great risk? I don't think they're intentionally doing bad things, but、uh, but it is a great risk for them because you know Chinese projects. Um, usually, compete in Africa on 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 the low cost, low cost, right? That that's part of the reasons they can secure、uh, these transactions. But that which means that they are less flexible if the if in in facing the loss of of the delay. So they are very sensitive, particularly if you talk the onsite with onsite managers. They are highly sensitive about project delay. So once there's a delay, everyone is panic. To be frankly, and and、uh, and they will the, the the natural instinct of the project managers to try to find the quickest fix of all the problems they face, local protest or whatever, and then the the, the seeking of the quickest fix leads to more problems. So all, all these kind of、uh, existing practices need to be changed gradually. And and I don't I don't think there will be a quick fix of of this problem,、um, but there are、um, new guidelines, for example, in in Sinoshore and 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 Exim Bank to be introduced,、uh, being introduced in the past few years to to encourage or at least open up the doors for foreign companies to do the environmental and social impact assessment for them, and so on. But in the end, it's about implementation rather than. At 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 the beginning, the 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 project development stage. So so how to make sure that、um, the 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 responsibility between Chinese partners and and the local governments can be clearly defined but reasonably 
in, and 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 uh, robustly uh, implemented. That that's the key issue. I think everybody should be interested in doing that. It's so interesting to hear. Um, you know, in in a related question, um, and this is maybe a difficult question to answer, but. So you know, we we've seen that some some of the companies, some of the Chinese companies that have been the most successful in Africa, have been um, ones that that take African realities and particularly kind of the way that Africa, you know, frequently like older kinds of infrastructure are, are, are missing in Africa. Um, so you know, so so the, the companies that have been very successful in countries like Transian, for example, that 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 saw that oh okay some you know even though no one else in the world is is working on 2g networks in some cases in africa you still need to produce phones that can actually handle 2g networks um so you know so so and then they made a lot of money out of that kind of flexibility one of the problems in africa is that is that national grids are so weak um you know that that kind of infrastructure is 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 old and and that there wasn't enough of it to begin with are we seeing chinese companies working in africa Africa starting to work, kind of find kind of innovative solutions to this problem that, you know, kind of either focusing on microgrids or, or kind of other ways of, 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 of linking into the national grid that, that can actually work with the lack of a grid that, that exists in some, some African countries. Sorry, that's a difficult question, I know. No, that's a thank you. That's a very good question. It's it's like you know uh, the uh, the existing model we, we we've been talking about the uh, the so-called EPC plus financing model, and in my opinion, is coming to a at a crossroad, um, particularly after COVID nineteen. And you mentioned the, the debt issues of many countries that are facing. Why the EPC and financing model? are so kind of a popular among large uh, conventional energy, uh, on-grid, you know, uh, uh, coal-fired or, or hydropower stations. It's, it's mainly because the project screening within um, these Chinese institutions, they, they, don't, they don't favor um, green over black or black over green, because as long as they promote Chinese exports, uh, black cats, green cats, they're all, you know, as long as they're catching the mouse in Deng Xiaoping's language, it's a, it's a good good cat. But the, this kind of a screening process do implicitly favor large projects over small ones. Think about it. If you think that the sovereign guarantee is a better risk mitigation tool, that the large pro- larger projects with strong endorsement from both countries are more likely to get sovereign guarantee, which is less, less you know, um, popular, but more and more precious, actually. And that's, that's one reason. And the other reason is that for big projects that have been strongly endorsed by political leaders from above, if they went wrong, it is less likely for the loan officers or, or insurance underwriters to be responsible for the so-called mistakes they made, right? So, so all these all these kind of a rule and kind of a norms and tend to favor large projects over small ones, and that's why in the previous decades you see. Um, not not because they uh, they are they are unfavored because they're renewables, but simply because they are not large enough and uh, under this kind of a too big to fail logic. The I mean the renewable, particular wind and solar projects, and until recently most of them are kind of a, a less than one hundred megawatts compared to the the mega projects in hydro and the coal fired power stations. So that's that's the issue. But how to 
change the scenario, particularly when the uh, the uh, the sovereign guarantee become less and less uh, uh, realistic, and also become a public finance or this kind of uh, 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 or government support may be less uh, less um, uh, feasible. So must there must be some uh, other uh, financial instruments and innovations among these existing either among these existing institutions we've been talking about. Or there must be some out of box uh, uh, solutions from, for example, Green Bond AIB just I think uh, initiated a huge programs on that, and also other actors coming into the picture and to provide some new in, uh, instruments and to make sure that off grid and mini grade systems can 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 spark off. I mean the uh, the strong ideologies among Chinese uh, regulators and also uh, these financial institutions are still there that they prefer that they kind of a one mega projects fix, uh, fix all problems model. But that that need to be gradually changed um, and to to adapt to to this kind of a new technological development that 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 is suitable for distributive system and so on. Over the last year or two, we've seen some announcements from um, from large Western investors, um, also private investors, that they're not interested in 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 investing in um, in high carbon electricity um, generation anymore. That they that they're not interested in, in for example, in investing in any coal. Um, do you like you, you made the point that that in a lot of cases the Chinese central government and some of the big actors like Sinosure and and um, you know agencies and so on don't necessarily have that much direct influence on what what the the Chinese companies are doing but do you foresee this kind of like high level announcement a similar kind of high level announcement coming out of China at some stage I think uh, yeah China already announced a kind of a green BRI a guideline uh, or principles but by and an very interesting by another ministry ministry of ecology and environment who is not responsible actually for the or, or at least overseeing the overseas activities but the question is is whether institutionally because we don't have a kind of a co uh, and um, uh, kind of an international agreement to totally ban coal in developing countries, which leaves kind of this open space for for the Chinese companies to to continue to to, to engage with with the coal fired power plants in many countries. But I think deep, uh, also deeply to asking if you're asking this. These people, it's like, do you still believe that, do you really see the, the danger or the risk of stranded asset of coal or fossil fuel in, in investment in these countries? And you, you get uh, more clear and clear messages that they do realize the coming risks um, of, of continue to, to, to invest in fossil fuels, even um, uh, in, in countries without baseload energy. Um, it could be another risk that they would like to underwrite more seriously, but but again, and from in, in what way they they should be pushed um, to to be more cautious about that. It can be from top down, and it can be from uh, um, from international civil societies, and it can be us from you know local uh, African governments. I think all these are needed to to make them to reconsider the risk of coal. And also the uh, how to how to make institutional changes within their within their uh, underwriting team or long 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 issuance team, and um, to, to 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 make changes possible. 
The article is China's role in Africa's energy transition, a critical review of its intensity, institutions, and impacts. It's in the Journal of Energy Research and Social Science. For those of you who have a Science Direct subscription through your institution, uh, you can get it. For the rest of you, unfortunately, again, it's my pet peeve of academic writing. Public tax money is used to support this writing, and we can't see it. But if you have $31.50, you can go and buy it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just the way it is. But unfortunately, we will put a link to it below in our show notes, and there's an abstract there. So if you even if you don't have it, you can get a gist of what Wei is writing, and it's an excellent article. Wei Shen is a research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton. Wei, thank you so much for taking the time to kind of explain this out to us. We really appreciate it, and congratulations on the fascinating article. Oh, thank you, Eric and Kobos. It's been nice to talk to you, and uh, hopefully my explanation from China's side can clarify some of the confusions. Kobus, this is the second guest who we've spoken to in as many months who's mentioned about the role of personal accountability within the process in the Chinese side. And, and I think this is a really underexplored aspect of the Chinese debt and, and the discussion that's going on right now about debt sustainability. So this idea that individuals are accountable if it's a smaller project, but if it's a political project that Xi Jinping or the Politburo wants, well, then individuals lose accountability in that sense, and it might be easier to move projects through. And that got me thinking that if African stakeholders understood the dynamics of this, there's an opportunity for them to be able to leverage that, is to convert something from an economic priority into a political priority. And what do I mean by that? So the idea here is that you know, the there's a vote at the UN, there's an issue coming up with the US, there's a Huawei decision coming up, and African leader XYZ says, you know, I'd like to support you, but I really need a power station. <laughs> and I'm wondering if that would actually work, is to convert something from economic to political, because as we've talked about in many instances, Africa's overall economic importance to China is declining steadily, in part because of the Belt and Road, and China can source a lot more of what it used to source from Africa elsewhere. So its political importance is going up, but this might be an interesting opportunity for African stakeholders to leverage their agency in all of this if they can determine what they want and how to use that in the discussions with China. Yes, I agree. And um, the last, the last point I think is is the real is really the key. You know, it's it, it depends on on African leaders working together. You know, cross border um, to set regional you know energy priorities to 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 have a kind of a, a roadmap of of the kind of energy you know mix that they want from China. So that this is the issue. You know, as, as African African countries have to know what they want, which specific kind of electricity provision they want, and you know, and 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 who they want to to provide it. Um, and then once they know that, then they they can kind of work these kind of political connections to try and get it. Um, but I think that this is this is a big problem in African development is that a the countries tend to be in it for themselves and they don't tend to think of it as collectively as they should but also that that frequently leaders are not capacity you know the capacitated to the extent that they that they really have very strong opinions about kind of what kind of energy supplies best um you know with it there there comes a kind of a, a you know a kind of a, a set way of thinking that 
um, that it's really important to use one's resources, particularly one's mineral resources, for oneself. You know, so obviously that's a 20th century thought that, you know, that if a country has, has coal, for example, then it shouldn't just export it raw, it should use it for its own economic growth, which, sure, but at the same time, you know, the, the, the third option that maybe you should just leave that coal in the ground is frequently not, not as strongly developed. Yeah, I mean, that looks better on paper than in reality, in part because of the logistics of coordinating cross-border. We still have not seen a lot of good examples of that happening. In one ways, though, the Inga 3 Dam, which we didn't get a chance to talk to him about, this is this massive dam that's being proposed. It's moving forward. It's hard to tell where it is, but it's got a consortium uh, of builders there, and it very much is a Southern Africa initiative. It's hard to tell if this will actually come to life only because it's so big, so ambitious, so expensive, and in this post-COVID-19 era, I'm not sure that the money's necessarily going to be there to, to support it. But if that does come through, that would, I think, in some ways speak to this idea of what you talked about in terms of cross-border harmonization of some of these energy initiatives. That being said, one of the other big takeaways that I took, that I gleaned from our conversation was the idea of small is beautiful and that China itself leveraged small power in order to build its energy infrastructure. And I think this is a big, big opportunity for other players like the Turks, who are also very big in infrastructure, and the United States, who's got its Power Africa program, to, to really build those small grids because that's where they can leverage the fact that they don't come with the big budgets that the Chinese come with, and they can actually build small. There's a distinct competitive advantage that other players might be able to bring to this. This is this is a big reason for for as many players as possible to be involved, not only you know from all over the world, but also other players within China. Because one of the things we've seen is that China has been incredibly successful in rolling out like little electric micro vehicles, for example, little micro three wheeled micro trucks, and so on that that you essentially plug into the wall you know, and and it charges overnight. That kind of technology, there's a massive potential for that kind of thing in Africa, um, and you know, I think I think we've seen we've seen some players are starting to move them into parts of Africa, but at the moment they're still in the NGO space. I think um, there is definitely a lot of there's the, essentially the trans scene of electrical vehicles, you know, um, like little little motorbikes and stuff like that, f like built to last and built to be to be cheap and and basic. I think those that that's a really unexplored niche in Africa that someone could make a lot of money in. The most important takeaway from our discussion with Wei Shen to me was the fact that you really can't say the word the Chinese. And when people say the Chinese are doing X in Africa, you always have to do a little bit of an eye roll and just take a big sigh. Because again, I think the Chinese are getting credit and blame for everything that company X is doing when they don't necessarily understand what's going on behind the scenes. So if you talk to the people at General Electric, at some of the European major power companies, they have a very, very close relationship with Chinese contractors because they do they depend on them for the EPC, as Wei Shen pointed out. And so yet they'll see a Chinese construction crew building a GE project and won't call that a GE project. They'll say it's a Chinese project. And then behind the scenes, as we heard in Beijing, there are competing ministries, competing state-owned enterprises, there's political considerations, economic considerations. This is a very complex matrix. 
So resist the urge to say the Chinese, just as we use Africa for shorthand, and that's kind of stupid, I know. We don't have any other way of describing the continent in a more refined way, but Africa is a stupid concept because it's, what, a billion people, countless cultures, countless language, dozens of of cultures and communities within states, within 54 countries. You can't necessarily kind of wrap that up all in one word. The same instinct should also be applied to the Chinese as well, and I think Wei Shen explained it perfectly as to why. At the same time, you know, kind of a lot of different African countries face similar problems, you know, so so that might be the kind of like talking from a space of shared challenge might be the way the way to go. And then in order to fix those challenges, one needs as many as many players as possible, you know, kind of and you need um, as many Chinese players as possible, but also as many Western and from other areas kind of companies, big and small need to be involved, you know, kind of and hopefully, hopefully Africa will get there. Let's close our discussion just to talk about your weekend. And I mean, in yours and every other South African's weekend. And I've been getting emails from all my friends in South Africa saying, sorry, I didn't get your email because we had no power. And it wasn't just that there was no power. The cell phones were also offline, I understand, because the load shedding that you've been having to deal with knocked out the whole system. I mean, there's been massive disruption to people's lives. I'm not sure that people outside of Africa are understanding the scope of the disruption to daily life that you are experiencing. Talk to us a little bit about the interruptions you've had in your daily life due to the load shedding. It's easy to sound like an hysterical white person when you talk about it, you know, kind of because one needs to, one needs to, you know, kind of understand that this comes on the back of of massive privilege in 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 you know in in terms of we generally have okay electricity in the middle of Johannesburg where I live, and in rural parts of South Africa it's much worse. But even in kind of like relatively bougie kind of central Johannesburg or like middle suburbs where I live at the moment it's it's kind of you know kind of every day there's this kind of question of like okay so let's see you know see how many hours of electricity we have today um and then a scramble to try and kind of get all the work done you need to do you know kind of while having four hours of of outage um the this is in part due to to apartheid planning, you know, that just still is still impacting on South African service delivery as a whole. Um, water is in some cases even worse, in, in, you know, in some areas of the country. Um, but it also has to do with with a decade of corruption under under Jacob Zuma and and um, you know which which where this this utility was was hit particularly hard, and then. Um, just a kind of bad planning, you know, and bad maintenance, bad planning, and and now a company that has dug itself into a massive financial hole, um, which the state is is uh, guaranteeing, like a bunch of loans that the state is guaranteeing. So it's it's all very kind of depressing, and and I think it 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 raises then the question of alternative ways of electricity production, including things like microgrids and even smaller than microgrids, um, that at some stage maybe the way for Africa to move forward is to give up on the idea of the grid as a whole, you know, and 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 kind of make it a mix of a, a mix of products, including you know, kind of like micro micro um, sustainability on on a household level. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's one of these big African problems that I think the whole continent is is facing, um, and South Africans just because I think because they come from more privilege of, of this issue, they tend to be a lot more vocal about it when they start complaining. Yeah, I mean, because it's something you had last week, but now you don't have. And that's really, it shows you the level of disruption. But at the end of the day, we talked about that more than half of the continent doesn't have access to 
regular electricity. And so in that sense, that's one of the reasons why I think the conversation between China and Africa is very, very relevant only because the Chinese are coming talking about building infrastructure and nothing, 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 nothing happens without steady power. All the dreams of building export zones, building new, new you know, enhanced trade, cross-border trade, the AFCTA that we've been talking about, the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, that depends on power. You can't make anything if you don't have any power. And so the conversation has to shift to power more than anything else. If you have no power, you have nothing really in terms of economic development. So that's, again, I think there's a great opportunity here for the United States and Power Africa to do something. Certainly the Europeans and Turks and Japanese who are all looking at smaller scale, business-driven types of engagement. Energy is really the most important of all the different sectors. I mean, energy then fuels health, it fuels economic development, it fuels so much. So, yeah, I mean, but I just, I don't always feel like we're, the conversations that we're having about Africa are always coming back to that practicality of what you've been having to deal with. Again, you're dealing with it now just intermittently. Other people on the continent, it's a way of life because that's all they know and that's all they have because the infrastructure simply isn't there. Yeah, no, this is this definitely is an issue. And this is really is the where the heart of African African development lies. You know, um, without electricity, nothing else moves forward. Um, and I think for that reason, it's really important for us to, to start think, thinking very creatively about what electricity provision might look like in the future. Because the thing is that the, the kind of grid that we have at the moment isn't working for anyone. It's not even working for the you know, for for the the rich world, um, you know, like if you look at a, at a place like California, there's rolling blackouts there, at the, at the, you know, and frequently in relation to the the danger of fires. So we're all going to have to rethink how we we get electricity, and we're all going to need more electricity in the future. And so, you know, like it's 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 something that that the, the world essentially needs a kind of a big Manhattan project um, to get, have sustainable and and um, ecological electricity provision for the entire globe. Well, these are the types of discussions that we're having every single day in our email newsletter that goes out to our premium subscribers, to uh, diplomats, business leaders, tech sector people, folks in Washington, Beijing, all over. We're so excited about the growth of our newsletter, uh, and, and we would love for you to be a part of this audience and who's getting this deep dive discussion on China-Africa issues. It's really, there's nothing else quite like it out there, something Kobus and I are very, very proud of. Uh, we made it very easy and affordable for people to sign up. Try it out, $3 for three months. So you get three months, we'll just give it to you, see if you like it, and if every day you get it and you find that you're using it and you're reading it and it's helping you shape your views, not just on what's going on in Africa, but Chinese foreign policy more broadly. Also, we're doing a lot more emphasis on China in the Persian Gulf and the Middle East, so it's useful there as well, giving you news and analysis, insight, all of it, every single day. And so we would love for you to be part of our community of readers. Once again, China Africa Project slash subscribe. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.